You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, Shalom, this is Shuvah Sopoyskim. I call today Tzumzach, which in Yiddish means to the point. But of course, it's a pun here because we're doing this on Zoom. And I have the ability, because of Zoom and its magical capabilities, I have the ability not only to have everybody here, but also, despite the long, the distance that you're there, I also have the ability to show you things on the screen in a way that hopefully makes them, uh, illustrates them better. The real point here is, is that um, there's things, knows that at the end of the Amida, at the end of the Shmon Esrei, one takes the three steps back. Now, if you look in the Shulchan, if you look in the tour, who quotes the Gemaras that are relevant there, the tour says that, first of all, So the first thing you have to understand is, is that you should be bent the whole time. Now, it's most people, you know, if, as they finish their davening, you can just see them sort of like uh, mosey on backwards, right? They sort of take three steps back. No, you are supposed to bend. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to bend. You're supposed to bend your body as much as you've bent it in modem or any of the other places where uh, you are required to bend your body. And while you are in a bent state, you actually take those steps back. You don't yet assume an erect posture until you finish this actions. And as he says, and then you, you move your head to the left and then to the right. But first of all, it should be done while you're bent. That's one thing. Um, because it's all about, in a way, subservience and showing where you've been and showing that type of honor. The other thing, which is in Shulchan Aruch Mefurish, which many people don't realize, is that lo limkomo. You're supposed to stay in that spot. It's a Gemara. It's not just a Minag. It's a Gemara in Yuma. It was said in the name of Rav Mordechai, not an Amora that comes up that often in Shaz, that when you are post, when you come, go back your three steps, you need to stay there, the Gemara says. And the Gemara says that this is similar to anyone who has had audience with someone great, that they are supposed to sort of stay there until they are dismissed. But if they sort of take the three steps back and then just start walking around, um, the Gemara compares it to an imagery that those of us that have dogs are familiar with. It's like a dog eating its vomit, right? A um, Because as the as and the tour explains uh, that that is the idea that hmm, were you really understanding what was going on here? I mean, right away you're moving around. It's almost like the the idiocy of a dog. The dog barfs, and then eats its barf. That is the Gemara. And most people, I think, again, you can you can uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think most people, if you stare around, most people, even people who are learned, um, who have gone through uh, learning processes, are very not nisar in this Indian. Um, there is a kula, but the kula is really uh, uh, based on a machlekes, 
an unusual machoikas, the Rambam and the Rif. The Rambam writes in his introduction to the Persha Mishnah that he only disagreed with the Rif about 10 times. I think that number increased by the time he wrote the Mishnah Torah, finished it about 20 years later. But here's, an ex- here's a place where the Rif and the Rambam disagreed in Halacha. Uh, it's based on how your machria, how you decide the Gemara Numa. How long do you have to stay there on your spot? So the Rif says, Paskins, that when Hazar Sashatz begins, that's when you can go backwards, go back to your spot. Um, the the Rambam, um, that's the Rif. The Rambam says you have to actually stay till like the other opinion in the Gemara, you have to stay till Kedusha. In other words, as the Chazan is about to get to Kedusha, like basically, uh, right at that, that's where you should take your steps back. And again, another thing about, again, without getting too uh, complex here, another thing is how you're supposed to take the three steps back. Um, the Shulchan, the tour doesn't say exactly, just says take your three steps back. Uh, the Beis Yosef quotes an interesting Machlekes Rishonim, and I think it's interesting for me because of how the Beis Yosef decides this uh, activity, how it should be done. So the Hagos Maimonis, that was the notes on the Rambam uh, that was written in the time of the Rishonim that added a lot of uh, texture and com- and sort of like complexity and sometimes uh, aspects of disagreement to the Rambam. That's called Hagos Maimonis. Uh, he quotes a Medrash Shochartov. I didn't look it up, but we know David HaMelech said, that every part of your body, every bone and every aspect of your body, in some ways is engaged in Avedis Hashem. So what about your left foot? Again, you know, with um, apologies to Christy Brown, what is, <laughs> where is the left foot in Avedis Hashem? So, the Medrash says, you know where the left foot is? Because that is the foot that you move first when you take your three steps back. Um, so that is what Agos Maimani writes. Now, the Beis Yosef, as we know, uh, did not, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of Shulchan Aruch, did not really develop in a vacuum. He was not someone who um, didn't have teachers. He had teachers, and he mentions who they are very proudly. And one of them was... Uh, one of them was uh, the Riavuhav, Rav Yitzchak Avuhav. Another one was, of course, Rav Yaakov Beirav, who gave him smicha. But he had another teacher, Rav Yitzchak Avuhav, who wrote a commentary. I don't think that we have its complete version, but he wrote a commentary on the tour, just like the Beis Yosef did. But of course, the Beis Yosef did much more than that. The Beis Yosef's commentary on the tour was meant to give you a complete encyclopedic sense of all the opinions in Halacha. His Rebbe wrote a commentary that basically dealt with Chaim um, from Rav Aaron of Lunil um, that you should do your right foot first. And Rav Aaron of Lunil, this Rishon, quotes the Gemara uh, in Yuma. We know whenever you go into the base, Hamikdash, for example, if you uh, if a Yisrael needs to go into the Azor, or even a Kohen goes into the Azor, or in fact, even when uh, a Kohen circles the Mizbeach in order to do the Haktorah on top of the Mizbeach, putting the pieces on the Mizbeach. The Gemara uses a principle that, and we, uh, this principle is 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 modeled by all of us, Sukkot, uh, and you make a right turn. Whenever you're making your turns, all the turns, whether you're lefty or not, they all go to the right. 
And therefore, Rabbi Yitzhak Abuhav, the Beis Yosef's Rebbe, says that that should be the case here too. You're leaving God's presence. You should go with your right foot. Um, and the uh, the Beis Yosef then quotes another Rishon, the Ohul Moed, um, and he also quotes another Rishon, the Baal Mafteach, who who also disagree. The Olmoed is like the Agos Maimini, the Balmafteach is like his Rebbe, the Riyavuhav. Um, but the again should be the left foot. And it's interesting. So he basically has here a machlokus Rishonim and Achronim. And with his Rebbe on the side of the opinion it should be the right foot, interesting here how he says, he says, the Medrish is Mafurish to go with the left first. And therefore, I'm not going to argue with that. Maybe it's not the most incredible uh, job for the left foot to begin the process away from God. And you're supposed to recognize, go with your left. But that's what it says in the Medrash. And he says, since everyone else didn't have a Medrash backing them up, but what did they have? They had the principle of always go to the right. So the Bishyosef says that when you have this idea of that's not that's when you're moving that's when you're actually taking a circle or you're actually going in a direction here you're just moving backwards from a spot so you're not really turning and since you're not really turning you will move your body towards a certain spot but not with your feet that will be with your upper torso and therefore he says that um <laughs> that's the way he's machria the way to do it. So go with your left. So basically what I'm trying to emphasize over here is a couple of things. First of all, let's be makbed on the salacha. Number two, let's do it correctly the way the Shulchan Aruch has told us to do it. Um, also, by the way, just want to point out something that um, the Riyavuav, although here he actually applauds what his Rebbe says, he says that if you look at the Gemara, you first you take the steps back, and then you say Osei Shalom Bimraumav. Then you say, and then you say, towards turning to the front, but the Ravi Avuhav, writing in the generation for the Yosef says, he says, In other words, everywhere he's seen, people start talking while they're taking the steps back. In other words, while they take the steps back, they say, while they're taking the steps. And he says, that's not the way it should be done. Um, and he quotes, the, the Riyabuav quotes people before him, and he quotes, the Gemara seems to say that Mufurish. So, interesting, I just want to point out, the Riyabuav wrote, Ma lanu So, basically, even though the Minig is this way, we should try to, uh, book this uh, following Kinnis appears. It is said right after Eicha, Aleichem Eida Kedosha, Eshel Mikem Shelot. I want to turn to you this holy, this this holy convocation, this holy uh, convocation of, of of Jewish people. I want to ask you questions tonight. What's the question I want to ask? Now we know that the night of 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 Tisha B'av is always the same night of the week as the first night of Pesach. So, how come on Pesach we eat matzah and moror? 
And And today we are just full of uh, of basically uh, embarrassment and bitterness. And the people have died. And therefore I'm crying. The next thing. Why on Pesach is the table set happily? And Atta of course, we're just we're we're just in pain. Madua Baleo Pesach, again, you have the third Gasha. Madu Baleo Pesach shows him Kosas Bivracha. He says, now, instead of that, we're going Nikra, we've just read, right? Or we will read, Begilas Eicha. Madua Baleo Pesach, do we, we always read the Haggadah, but today it's crying, it's being upset. Oh, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Then you have the you have a fifth and sixth question. How come Aleo Pesach? We always finish Halel. But now mispad All we are 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 are, are upset and, and crying. Now the Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, uh living in the eighteenth uh, century, was uh, early part of the eighteenth century, was very against this piece. He said, I'm not saying it doesn't have relevance, but it's really sort of improper for the night. The night is supposed to, that's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be really pain. Yes, there is pain here, but this, 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 this sort of like bringing up Pesach is different than, than uh, Tisha B'Av. Now, there is a kino that you guys, you might remember that is similar to this that the Ashkenazim say. And it contrasts how we left Mitzrayim and how what happened in Yerushalayim. And that is really more graphic and more mournful. This one is a little more playful. And therefore, he said, this was written in order for kids. This was written for kids. And he thinks, Rabbi Yaakov Chagas does, that it was really meant by its author to be said on the night of Pesach, to sort of bring up the sort of incongruity. And this is one of the reasons why we eat the egg on Pesach night, according to many opinions, because it is, it's similar to the Avelus on Tisha B'Av, it's the same night. And therefore, he uh, promotes the idea of jettisoning it from the kinos, that it should not really be part of the kinos. It's, it's not without merit, but it's not proper on that night. Now, Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef, I think, uh, under the influence of his dad, says that he knows about this, but he says, In other words, you're right. It's sort of not really the right mood. It sort of breaks the mood. Maybe that's not what Tisha B'av should be entered into, but people say it. And this is the point. Minhagim are minhagim. <laughs> and then he quotes a number of Ashkenazi and Sephardi sources showing you that when you have a minag, you don't necessarily assume that it's wrong, even though it seems illogical. There's an idea that when a whole community accepts something and they've inserted it into their prayer book, that it's almost like the Holy Spirit is vivifying them. And it must be that they're meant l'shem shamayim. And he, you quote this, the language here of the Yad Elio, that Meir Hashem Yisbarach Bechlal Yisro Ruach HaKodesh. Um, he brings the Tshuvas Ginas Verodim as also in the same way. She'im Kvar 
that if you have something which has been accepted, then you can't just assume since you don't understand it that it shouldn't be said. Because if, and here you have most of the Sephardic communities that have printed this in their machzer and have been saying it for the last, you know, for who knows, for hundreds of years, perhaps even before Rabbi Yaakov Chagus, then you have to say this is what God wants. Um, now, the Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef points out, though, that that's only if there's no Isser Veheter involved. If there's no Isser Veheter. For example, when it comes to various, how the tefillah should happen. How the tefillah should happen is, even though you think it's illogical, well, but this is the way the custom has developed. And therefore, he says, when it's minhogim, show iser veheter, though, when it turns out that what they are doing violates an avera, even a, like drinking stamienum, perhaps, which was a minig in Italy, that they used to drink the, the wine of, of non-Jews. Um, or many other sort of coolest that communities had in terms of Shabbos, you can't necessarily say, well, this is the minute we've been doing it this way, and therefore we have to continue. Um, and, and, and Rabbi Zaki Yosef goes to quote many of the great Rishonim who were actually confronted by communities that were, that Minogam had been adopted, which were counter halacha, and all of them said that the Rabbonim in those towns have to do whatever they can, despite the power of Minog, to overturn them. And you turn over a Minog for the right reasons, there's going to be other Minogim that are going to be turned over for the wrong reasons. And unless you are worried about an Isser being violated, then what you should do is keep the Minogim in place. That is really what Rabbi Tzik Yosef says, and he believes that is the consensus of all the G'dele Yisroel. And therefore, he believes that, okay, you don't like this as part of your, your machzer, but everybody says it, let's keep it in. Okay, the Beis Yosef's Rebbe. He says, a minatos, we should stop it. People should not tell everybody they're doing oh, they're doing this wrong, the way they're taking the steps back. They should be saying oh, only after the three steps have been taken back. That's when they should be saying. Again, it sounds like even though it's re- no one's hurt by it, no isser is, is involved. And if that's the way the minig is developed, it might be counter to what the sources say, but he felt that you need to Stop it. And you need to tell people that they're wrong and how they're doing it, even though the minig has developed that way. But why are you going to the left first? So the Rishonim say you go to the left first because what you're doing is you're sort of like, that's you're in front of God and your left is God's right. I want to show you something that the Shibboli Aleket, uh, that I mentioned before, uh, says, Tzidkio Harofe, he writes, what happens when you're in Shmon Esrei? You're like in you're you're like in Harsina. You're like at the Shechina. It's like you are in, in in a different world, and therefore, when you come out of that, um, you've come out of such a great place of kedusha, and now that you've finished, you're you're in a you're in the place where you exist, sort of like Moshe Rabbeinu leaving Harsina. You're now in a Mokam Chol, and Varayla Davar Shekenu. Even 
So in other words, you're not talking to God. You're almost saying to the other people around you that you're davening B'tzibor, like almost like what we do at Kiddush Levana. So part of it is actually, in a way, I'm no longer in this status, this stasis of connected to God where nothing can penetrate. I'm now moved away. So the movement, even though you don't necessarily talk to the guy next to you, but you go through the motions of someone who is part of this sort of mundane world. So the move to the left and the move to the right approximates sort of like what they would do in the Oriental countries of bowing to each other. You're not really bowing to God at all. And I thought that was that was interesting. And that really emphasizes the fact that you have left a incredible place. But that's really, <laughs> that's not going to change how you do it, but it might change why you're doing it and what the significance is of that. Okay. Um, the Beis Yosef quotes, a, a, I think, a very interesting thing, which many people, once again, don't really do correctly. Uh, the Beis Yosef quotes that, uh, from the Shiboy Leket again, from Ripsitki Arofe, quoting the Gaonim, that people finish their davening before the Tzibor. So before the Shliach Tzibor, you're a fast davener, or your Chazin is a, somewhat of a slow davener. So as we said before, you take your three steps back and you're standing there. What do you do while you're standing there? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what I do. I mean, sometimes uh, if I have, if there is a, a, a slow Chazin, I'll either close my eyes and think about some hopefully positive things. Sometimes I'll take a safer. Uh, I'll look at that safer um, and without, you know, obviously moving my lips, but thinking about something in a way that is in line with the process. The Gaonim wanted to tell people that they have no permission to turn their face around they need to keep their face directly in front of them. They have to have their countenance directly in front of them. Okay, what is the idea behind that? Now, I would say, of course, well, you know, uh, you, you know, this is something that many people do, right? <laughs> many people actually do this. What they do is they sort of, um, um, you know, this is sort of a, hey, I said, who's in troll today, right? You know, okay, all right, well, see, oh, yeah, see, he came in finally. Yeah, look at that suit that that guy's wearing. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, he finally shows up one day. Um, the the Lavush, uh explains this, that the reason why you shouldn't, you know, be turning around, he has two reasons. One of them is that people will think that you finished opening before everybody else. Now, again, it's a little bit weird here because they're supposed to be davening. But when they see you looking around, they say, well, that guy davened fast. Oh, that guy must have skipped stuff. So in other words, turning around, you know, it's, it's almost like it's, 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 it's almost like, hey, it's not really true that uh, everybody is so involved in their davening and in their, in their silent Shmon Esrei. They're noticing you when you turn around. And they get the sense about you that, oh boy, he davened fast. He must have skipped stuff. Um, that's one as far as the Lubush says. Uh, the second one it says is that that there's a shchina there. In other words, when you're turning around, there's a shchina in front of every single person. And therefore, 
you and when you were davening, you were looking at the Shekhinah. Now, like you're turning around, that's sort of like a, a an insult to God. Okay, that's a, those those ideas are nice, but there's something I think deeper psychologically that the Tao not how knowledgeable of the human condition uh, the Achronim were. Look what he says. He says, That when you look at people, they know you're looking at them. They might be doing Shmon Esrei. They might have their eyes closed. But people know when somebody's staring at them and looking at them. Okay, and that is going to stop their Kavana. Like, and, and what are you looking at them for for no reason? And I think that's very important to realize that we are all part of Atzibur uh, every single day. And our actions, even our looks, make a difference. And this is, again, I would say this is like an area, these three steps back and how one should act through them is the type of thing which I think is is is, is severely underrated. And most people, again, it, 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 there's so many important, I think, elements here that could really in a way have your ending like the Gemara, the Pasuk says Tov that the end of something really is in a way is an indicator better even than the beginning most of us I think have a hard time when we start a Shman Esrei unless we're really pumped up from the tefillah that we've been having that takes us a while to get into it you know, it's interesting, you know, I, I quoted to you from the Gaonim that it's almost like I've left this holy place. The Chassidim say, it's a statement to the Magnum of his rich says that, uh, that in the name of the Baal Shem, that a person should almost feel like a make a bracha that he's alive. And davening should be so intense, it's almost like he's not alive anymore when he's davening. And therefore, it's a, he should almost bench goymel that he was able to come out of davening. That's, that intensity of the chesinamev, I think, is somewhat reflected by this that, those, that statement about you're in that mokam kodosh and now recognize what davening is really about. One last thing here uh, about this. Um, the the Ramah mentions something the Shulchan Aruch doesn't. And all of us do it. And it's in almost all the uh, Sidurim, even the Sephardi Sidurim. What does it say? It says, and the, uh, the Ramah says that when you finish your Shemona Esrei, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to say, the Minag is to say, mikdosh. That the Beis Hamikdash should be built. Now, there's an implication here that the Beis Hamikdash is going to be built not by that is going to be built by us. That we will build the Shiyibone, that it will get built, and we're going to be the ones building it. The Sfardim, if you look in the Sfardi uh, version of this, is Shetibin Beis Hamikdash. That the Beis Hamikdash sort of is that will be built by God. That it's going to come down from Shemayim from God. And Yibon Beis HaMikdosh sort of is an indicator that we're going to build the Beis HaMikdosh. But the question is, why do we say this again? And we've done the davening already. So what's the purpose in, in, in once again saying this Yehi Ratzon? Um, and then we also say, of course, we say Vesein Chalkeinu Besarosecha. So most of the time when I uh, want to try to figure out why the Ramah says something, I either go before or after. What do I mean by this? The Ramah's book on the Shulchan Aruch is called the Mapa, which is the tablecloth. 
Okay, tablecloth meaning the tablecloth of the table that was set by the Shulchan Aruch. Now, it is really, in a way, uh, developed the reasons behind it in the sefer that he wrote on the tour called Dark Moshe. Now, he had read the Beis Yosef. The Ramo was younger. Uh, I heard from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zuchanu Avrocha, that uh, the Ramo himself wanted to write a Shulchan Aruch. But when he heard that there was already the Beis Yosef was writing his, um, he demurred. He said, I'm not going to write an alternate Shulchan Aruch. What I'm going to do is I'm going to write a tablecloth to the table and indicate where Ashkenazim can follow their customs because of the Beis Yosef not giving enough credence to Ashkenazi custom. And we that's where we have all these arguments between the way the Shulchan Aruch, the way that we call him the Machaber, and the Ramah. Okay. Now, the point, though, is, is that normally, if you want to know what the Ramah min, meant, you go to his earlier work on the tour, which is called Dark Moshe. Well, in the Dark Moshe, he mentions this custom of saying Yehi Ratzah. But why? Where did the custom develop? So in the Dark Moshe, he says, Nirali atam mishum sha'amru v'hashev avoda l'dvir beisecha. Right? We know Ritzay, which is the beginning of the last three the last three brachos, right? The last three brachos, you have avoda, and then you have hoda'ah, and shalom. So those last three brachos are the way every davening is finished. So since you said in Ritzay, let's return the avoda to the dvir beisecha, which is the beis hamikdash, even though the word dvir can sometimes mean the kodesh akdashim, but here it means the dvir of, of the beis hamikdash. So therefore, we are mevakesh al binyan beis hamikdash. Hmm. So I guess it sort of like elaborates what we meant. So in the Brach of Ritzay, although the Anshi Knesset Zagdola wrote it, maybe some people don't know what that means. And let the Avoda come back to the Dvir. So therefore we say, we mean a Beis HaMikdash, you understand. Right? We said, let it return to Zion, but but we didn't say Beis HaMikdash openly. So, he, so Dvir means Beis HaMikdash. That seems to be what he means. And then he says, we also in in the bracha of shalom, and we also said barcheinu kulanu be'or panecha. God, give us this bracha in the light of your face, of your countenance. Well, what does that mean? You know, give us a bracha in the light of your face. So the Ramah says we know that's Torah. In other words, when we say God bless us with the light of your countenance, it means we should understand Torah better. It means that when we learn, we understand quickly, we, 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 we get the principles, we get the concepts, we are better learners. Okay, so that's why we say, to explain what those brachas mean. So really, the Hiratzon is sort of like a footnote to explain what was in the Shemona Esri earlier. That's what the Ramah writes in the Dark Emotion. But it's, to me, quite interesting that if you take a look at what he says in his Mapa, which means what he wrote on the Shulchan Aruch, which was written years later, look at the way he says it. The reason why we say that he wrote sound, because Tfila is b'mokom avoda, l'chein mevakshim ala mikdosh, shenucho asos avoda mamish. In other words, you might get the idea that davening's good enough. <laughs> like, look, I've, I've done a great davening. Oh boy, I felt like I was with God. Oh, I was up there. You know, you know what? After davening, we want to say this wasn't good enough. We want the real thing. 
Yeah, okay. Oh, boy, davening was great. You know, we don't have to go anyplace. We don't have to go to the Yerushalayim. We don't have to worry about animal animals dying. We don't have to worry about, you know, where the Kohanim are going to stay, where they're going to, like, where, where, where they're lodging. No, no, no. We want the Beis HaMikdosh. In other words, a person could sometimes get so into davening that he believes, okay, this is Avodah. This is what God wants. This is the what the Torah means by the Pasuk, like the Rambam says. That's why the minute came to actually stop that. The minute came to say, Mamish, we want to do avoda. Yes, with the blood, with the slaughtering, everything else that goes into it and all that. That's what we want. And we shouldn't try to think that this is good enough. I think that's a total different emphasis. So again, I... I I really believe this little simon in Shulchan Aruch can do a lot for you in terms of not just being, okay, here's the end of my davening. Most people, of course, know that the psak is that you have to have kavana for the first bracha. I think what we come out from today is the end is pretty important and in many ways can really give you a whole different mindset about what your davening was. The problem is, of course, when you're checking mezuzahs, and you believe they should be checked, and they should be checked um, twice every seven years. Um, and many people feel that when bad things occur, they want to check their mezuzahs, right? Have your mezuzahs checked. And there seems to be sources for that. Um, how do you do it? Because when you take your mezuzahs down, you don't have mezuzahs in your house anymore. So what happens? So... The question was asked to Rabbi Shlomo Avinir. Let me read you the question. He says, we know that the, the checking of the mezuzahs might take a day or two, and therefore the house no longer has mezuzahs on it. Or do you say, look, uh, since Chazal say you have to check mezuzahs, so that's the way it happens, right? Like, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> the mezuzahs need to be checked, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to go get other mezuzahs. Okay. One of the things that the person who asked Rabbi Avinir said might could be done is to leave one mezuzah in the front. In other words, basically, you keep a mezuzah on the house, at the front of the house. And that mezuzah doesn't go off until your other mezuzahs come back. And then one of the mezuzahs that was checked and was considered kosher, you then replace your front mezuzah, and your front mezuzah is the one that is checked last. But this way, your house always has that front mezuzah. That was, that was the idea of the person asking the question. Rabbi Vinera points out that this is built on a, um, on, a, on a big mistake. There are people who think that that is the case, that all you, that's the most important mezuzah, and that's really, in a way, the essential one. The, in the time of the Maril, and we're not going to have time to go into it in depth, but in the time of the Maril, Rabbi Yaakov Malon in uh, Germany, uh, this seemed to have spread in many of these Ashkenazi communities. They only had a mezuzah on the front door. And the Maril was very upset about this. And yet there were Talmidah Chachamim who had written him questions, and they could tell from their questioning that even they had succumbed to this mindset of only one mezuzah. And that was the main one. Um, now, part of it, uh, the Maril says, might have been because in some of those Ashkenazi countries, especially in the 14th and 15th century, there was there was mass slaughter that was occurring, and many of the communities were decimated. And because of that, there was this idea that people weren't even living in the rooms of their homes. 
where there had been a home that was full of people, now that home was missing. <laughs> and now you would have like a house that the Jews were still living in, but there were three or four rooms that used to house an uncle, a brother, and those people had been slaughtered. And therefore, there sort of came the idea that you didn't need a mezuzah there because no one's really actually sleeping there and living there. Of course, the Maril said this was a mistake. It's not true. And the Ramah quotes the Maril in Shulchan Aruch saying that this minhag, again, we talk about bad minhagim. This isn't one that you have to stop because there's an iser of being in a room and staying in a room without a mezuzah. Here, over and say. So the minhag might have developed, but it's wrong and it needs to be stamped out. So therefore, the idea that, oh, keep uh, all the other ones are off, but the mezuzah in the front is the main one, that is a mistake. Okay. I believe, parenthetically, there are, I think, Jews that are more just traditional and not orthodox, who you'll see only one mezuzah in their house. I think that's the mezuzah coming into their front door. I, I do believe that's something that I have seen. And I think that is, in a way, a sort of a grandchild of this old German minug that the the postgim are are trying to stamp out. So what should you do then? So he says like this. He says we know in many homes there are mezuzahs that are humrus, meaning eh, you know what? I'm not sure if that's considered an opening or not. I'm not sure. Right? There's certain places you know people are living. Also, there are certain rooms that you have a storage room. You have room that, oh, that's where I keep all my papers. That's the room where I keep all the junk. That's the, oh, oh, that goes up to the attic. Oh, that's the one that leads out. So many of those uh, mezuzahs are what Ravaviner calls humra mezuzahs, right? And therefore, what you should do is not not eliminate them. It's nice that you put a mezuzah there. Those are the ones that you should do what? You have them checked first. Take down the chumra mezuzahs and or the ones alternately of rooms you're not using. Rooms, let's say you're already a, a, a empty nest couple and there's rooms that you don't really make normal use of. Yes, sometimes maybe a guest sleeps there, but that's not part of your normal usage. Those are the ones that should be checked first. Now, once you get them back, place them on the essential places. And then those ones that weren't in those unessential places don't have mezuzahs now, but that's not so bad because they didn't really need a mezuzah as much. The front door versus the living room or, 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 the, or, or the study, those are of equal importance. So there, there's no logic to say, well, I kept the front door, but I took it off the living room. No, the living room, and the front door are equal. Bedroom, living room, they're all equal. But there are certain places in every house that are less equal. And those are the ones that should be taken down, checked first, when they come back from the sofer, then you put them up in the essential. Pnir published this psak. He published it in one of the uh, these uh, journals that came out uh, weekly in Eretz Yisrael. Um, uh, uh, Talmud Chacham responded to him that the if you tell people that they've got to go through this whole cheshpun in their heads, of which room is a suffix, which room is not, and to take it down in this complex manner, most people are going to say, yeah, forget about it. Uh, in fact, he quotes the uh, the, the, the Rav of Buchach, 
that that you were allowed to take mezuzahs off for the sake of bedika, even though you have no mezuzahs at all. Because um, clearly, that if there is a, uh, and he quotes the father of the Shlomo, that if there's if you're supposed to check mezuzahs, they didn't have big homes, they didn't have Suffolk places, you can clearly, that means you can live in the place till the mezuzahs comes back. And this was the psak of Rav Elyoshev. Rabbi Yoshev says that you can take down all the mezuzahs of your house, and the assumption is that it doesn't take that long. The sofer, you know, he opens them up, he can look, a, a sofer can be bodic mezuzahs within three or four minutes, if he knows what he's looking for, uh, maybe even less. So basically, even if you have 20 mezuzahs, and you're paying him whatever you're going to pay him, uh, you're going to get it back. Um, and The minig seems to be, uh, this questioner said, that people seem to bring mezuzahs piecemeal. But um, according to Rebel Yoshev, they don't need to. Take them all down. Take them all down, and you assume you're going to get it back. You know, even if it turns in the sofa, it has a backlog. According to Rebel Yoshev, it's not a problem. You're able to take the mezuzahs down because... Obviously, Chazal understood that, that the the can say that if you if you own if you were one of the owners of the company and you have an office and you sit in there and you work there, so in a way that's sort of like an extension of your house. But let's say some of the other rooms in that company, even though it's a building that you might own, and it's definitely you know, and you have non-Jews and other people, even Jews that are in there, um, it's there really is no chi of mezuzah. Uh, because that's not really where they live and it's not a place that they own. Let me say it better. There's places where it's a hidur and there's places where we really don't need mezuzahs pechlal. Um, and sometimes, as it was the case in our company, since some of the places where we had mezuzahs, the mezuzahs were exposed to extreme temperature and places where the cleaning crew uh, would engage in such extensive cleaning that the the water and other things ruined the partios inside so you know you know even though you know we wanted to check them we just when we realized how many partios uh, had been ruined you know we figured we're not putting mezuzahs over there um there there had been an argument well it's always good to have a mezuzah no it's not always good to have a mezuzah um sometimes it's a negative Especially, let's say, if it's a place that has that type of exposure. Now, of course, people who live in intemperate climates, and and clearly there are ways to wrap the mezuzahs in a in a in a, in a firm manner and a type of casing that can resist the type of extreme cold temperatures. But if you have, again, if it's talking about just because, oh, I'm a Jewish company and it's a Jewish factory, we want to set an idea that everywhere we are. We have our mezuzahs there. That is actually a suitor for my daughter. And the first time he showed up, um, we, yeah. we had we had a, a family barbecue. And right. um, I, he, his, I, I daven, I guess, a pretty long shman estray compared to the average person. Um, I don't know if that's true in Eretz Yisrael, but definitely, I think, in America. 
And I noticed when I had taken my three steps back that he hadn't. And when he took his three steps back, his body was bent as he was going back. And I said, okay, at least he's <laughs> mocked on that. Alocha. That's pretty good. That says a lot, you know, shaking during davening and putting up his hands and, and that, that, that. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.